our road to walk then and now, is copyright protected. It may not be used or sampled without the owner's written permission. Welcome to Our Road to Walk, Then and Now, a podcast brought to you from Warren County, North Carolina. It's known as the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. I'm Deborah Ferruccio. And I'm Ken Ferruccio. In our last episode, we left our listeners with questions. Questions we had about a seeming tangled web of relationships between local, state, and federal officials. Why should our listeners care about a seeming web of toxic relationships taking place back in the summer and fall of 1979 in a backwoods part of the rural South? Why should they care? Because that web of relationships in 1979 was part of a crucial turning point in American environmental history, actually a tragic watershed of EPA decisions and events that were taking us down the road to pervasive petrochemical pollution, and to climate disaster that we're now on. In 1979, the pressure for cheap and convenient methods of toxic waste disposal was enormous. Industry was using thousands of dangerous chemicals that created millions of pounds of noxious byproducts each year. The public was becoming aware of this serious chemical problem with horror stories that hit the national news from Love Canal, New York, where the Hooker Chemical Company's EPA-approved canal landfill leaked chemicals into surrounding basements, causing birth defects, miscarriages, respiratory ailments, and cancer. In Woburn, Massachusetts, childhood cancer and kidney cancer were the result of industrial chemical wastes. Many more examples of chemical waste destroying the public health and the environment were also coming to light in 1979. It's not that the dangers of chemicals hadn't been known for decades. These dangers were known by industry and the government, but not so much by the general public. Seventeen years earlier, in 1962, in her groundbreaking, well-documented book, Silent Spring, Rachel Carlson awakened Americans to the dangers of the indiscriminate use of toxic chemicals and pesticides. The back cover of the first edition reads, When you read Silent Spring... You will know why William O. Douglas called it the most important chronicle of the century for the human race. On the back cover also, anthropologist Margaret Mead warned, not war but a plethora of man-made things is threatening to strangle us, suffocate us, bury us in the debris and byproducts of our technologically inventive and irresponsible age. On the same back cover of Silent Spring, Richard Nixon asserted, The 1970s absolutely must be the years when America pays its debt to the past by reclaiming the purity of its air, its water, and our living environment. It is literally now or never. These were very dire warnings over 60 years ago from a future Supreme Court justice, a future president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and a future U.S. president. Clearly, these three notable Americans and other very important people knew about the magnitude and the dangers of chemicals 50 and 60 years ago. Why then have the production and use of chemicals only grown exponentially? How could petrochemical destruction become universal to life around the globe? In earlier episodes, we used the metaphor that Rome is burning to describe our irresponsible age as we continue to enjoy our lives and watch on. 
Bill McKibben, who was among the first writers to warn of the danger of global warming some 30 years ago, and who leads an international organization to address global warming called 350.org, points out in his book titled Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out, that Rome's burning didn't destroy the whole world, that as our civilization falters and falls, it very well could be the end game for the natural environment and the whole human race. As we address the existential consequences of our chemical age and chronicle the North Carolina PCB saga in this Our Road to Walk podcast series, and as we're sharing the history that we've kept and that we've lived over these past 45 years, it's Ken's and my hope that our listeners will realize that the focus of our efforts to stop toxic aggression and environmental injustice must be a concerted resistance focused on the underlying regulatory and policy causes on the EPA and the industries and politicians who control the EPA. When Richard Nixon became president in 1968, in 1970 he created the Environmental Protection Agency. Soon after, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act were passed. What to do with waste, especially hazardous waste, was difficult for the EPA to address. On February 4, 1970, Nixon proposed the need for an environmental cleanup program that would cost $10 billion for waste treatment plants. Also in 1970, Congress directed EPA to investigate the industrial dumping of toxic wastes. So what did President Nixon have to do with the toxic tangled web of 1979 we are talking about? Earlier in the decade, the Nixon administration awarded a $14 million housing and urban development loan guarantee for land development in Warren County for a Seoul City new community housing and industrial park project. According to the book Seoul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia, author Thomas Healy writes that this $14 million investment in Seoul City would be equivalent to $87 million today. Why did Nixon support such an extravagant government land guarantee for one of the poorest areas in the whole country, where, according to Healy, 40% of homes lacked indoor toilets and 7 of 10 adults lacked a high school diploma? Did Nixon's awareness of the need for waste facilities factor into his support of Seoul City? In 1972, in his bid for re-election, Nixon sought the support of black voters and found an ally in constitutional attorney and civil rights leader Floyd McKissick, Sr., who had served as director of the Congress of Racial Equality in the 1960s. In 1969, McKissick had published a book titled Three-Fifths of a Man. It was a powerful call for economic empowerment of blacks. In the foreword of the book, William O. Douglas, who also endorsed Silent Spring, wrote, The mood of this book makes it a must for all Americans. The mood reveals the depth of the anguish and anger in the black community. McKissick became a Republican and a fundraiser for Nixon. The Nixon administration supported McKissick's Seoul City project, but after the Watergate scandal drove Nixon to resign as president on August 8, 1974, getting investment support for the Seoul City project became increasingly difficult. Meanwhile, Following up on Congress's 1970 directive to the EPA to investigate the industrial dumping of toxic wastes, by 1973, 
The EPA had gathered a significant amount of information about hazardous waste and how to handle and dispose of it as safely as possible. In 1974, William Sanger became branch chief of the EPA's Hazardous Waste Management Division, with a staff of about 20 people and a budget of several million dollars, Sanger and his colleagues proceeded to amass a wealth of new information through studies about industrial toxic waste damages and treatment technologies. Sanger's work was to take the information he and his staff had gathered about hazardous waste disposal and to use his research management and policy analysis skills to help guide the EPA in implementing its new responsibilities of regulating industrial hazardous waste disposal. His job was to frame hazardous waste regulations for the protection of human health and the environment. These regulations became known as the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, or RICRA, which was passed by Congress in 1976. But according to Sanger, who became an EPA whistleblower, Implementation of these regulations was delayed and corrupted by frivolous political reasons unrelated to the purposes of the program. On June 15, 1978, Sanger's boss, Mr. John Lehman, director of EPA's Hazardous Waste Management Division, met with his staff. He explained that the orders he had received from EPA Assistant Administrator Tom Drolling were that President Carter's directives were to reduce the federal budget to fight inflation. This would result in a drastically reduced scope of the new EPA hazardous waste disposal regulations that would be going into effect. Sanger summarized the meeting in a memo he then shared with several Senate committees. He wrote that EPA Administrative Assistant Jorling felt that one way in particular the EPA could reduce the scope of the hazardous waste that would be regulated was to change the definition of what waste would even be covered by the regulations. Sanger wrote in his memo, Jorling felt the definition could not be based on such characteristics of a waste as to whether it caused cancer, birth defects, or was poisonous, because by doing that, it was not possible to accurately predict how much waste or which industry would be pulled into the hazardous waste program. This would then make it difficult to accurately assess the cost to the polluting industries in advance. Sanger also wrote that Mr. Lehman said EPA would delay implementing the regulations in order to examine alternatives for reducing the scope of which chemical wastes would be regulated. He said the staff would be involved in determining the economic impact of those alternatives as well as their ramifications on other programs within the agency, and that his exercise would consist mainly of cutting things out of the regulations that were currently there. Mr. Sanger's reaction was how cruel, stupid, and short-sighted Jorling's orders were. By relieving industry of the burden of testing their wastes for the harmful effects before dumping them, he was transferring the testing to the livers, kidneys, and fetuses of people unknowingly exposed to the waste. Sanger continued, He's not saving money, he's just magnifying and transferring costs, and it's inconsistent with our congressional mandate to protect human health and the environment. A February 23, 1979 Washington Post article is titled, If you don't like it, get out, White House tells EPA staff. The article illustrates how the president and the EPA were captured by the industries the agency was charged with regulating. According to the article, 
President Carter's attempts to loosen and eliminate unnecessarily and overly burdensome regulations in order to hold down costs and thus combat inflation were causing widespread dissatisfaction among EPA officials, and many were threatening to resign. The president's press secretary, Mr. Jody Powell, said, These EPA officials should be aware that their resignations will be gladly accepted at the earliest opportunity, and they should not be hesitant at all in offering them. On March 15, 1979, Sanger responded in a letter to his boss, John Lehman. Sanger's letter exposes how the EPA severely reduced the scope of what chemicals would be regulated by removing the test protocol that would have defined the chemical waste as hazardous. But just as a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, a hazardous chemical by any other name is still a hazardous chemical. It was a name game at the cost of human health and the environment, at the cost of honest science, and at the cost of the very purpose and integrity of the Environmental Protection Agency. It's no wonder that Sandra was then dismissed from his EPA position, relegated to a meaningless position without a staff, and why he became an EPA whistleblower. We're sharing William Sanger's letter to John Lehman, the director of the EPA Hazardous Waste Division, in its entirety because it shockingly reveals how so many dangerous chemicals go unregulated. Dear Sir, this letter is in response to Section 3001 of the proposed Hazardous Waste RICRA regulations, which appeared in the Federal Register on December 18, 1978. This letter is a supplement to the letter I sent dated January 4, 1979, on the subject of standards to define hazardous waste. I have done research into what hazardous waste will be left unregulated by the agency's decision to eliminate from the standards those test protocols which define whether a waste is poisonous or causes cancer or birth defects and rely instead only on identification of specific known hazardous wastes. I have found that about 80% of the wastes from the manufacture of pesticides are not specifically identified in the proposed standards. Some examples of waste which your proposed regulation leave unregulated are 1. Waste from the manufacture of C56, hexachlorocyclopentadine, which was identified in hazardous waste disposal problems at Love Canal and Bloody Run in Niagara Falls. 2. The Valley of the Drums in Kentucky, Montague, Michigan, and Toon, Tennessee. 4. Waste from the manufacture of Keypone, which destroyed the fishing in the James River in Virginia. 5. Waste from the manufacture of Myrax, which destroyed fishing in Lake Ontario. 6. Waste from the manufacture of pentachloronitrobenzene, which contains dioxin. And 7. Waste from the manufacture of DBCP, which causes sterility. Sanger continued in his letter, Whereas previously these wastes may have been disposed of inadequately and secretly, they can soon be disposed of inadequately and openly. This means that such a waste may legally be used as fertilizer where it can enter the food chain, used as landfill where it can leach into underground drinking water, stockpiled where it can run off into surface water and leach into groundwater. If the waste is volatile, as in Love Canal, it will be allowed to poison the air without constraint. As Sancha continued, I would also like to point out that earlier drafts of the regulations 
had test protocols which would have prevented these uses from happening. As pointed out in my letter of January 4, EPA management ordered these protocols dropped from the regulations and then stated that suitable test protocols were not available. Nevertheless, the very same test protocols which were deemed unsuitable for bringing hazardous waste into the system are used in Section 250 of the proposed standards to allow waste out of the system. This includes test protocols for cancer, birth defects, bioaccumulation, and toxicity. Sincerely yours, William Sanger. In order to institute the regulatory changes that were opposed by honest EPA officials such as Sanger, new definitions and a new vocabulary were emerging. As Sanger said, definitions of hazardous waste were streamlined, some by 80%. Empirical evidence-based science was on the way out as waste management policies and regulations became designed to protect industry's economic bottom line. The regulations were politicized by EPA administrators serving at the pleasure of the president. President Carter's EPA administrator Douglas Costell later would be chairman of Metcalf and Eddy, hazardous waste consultants, and would be a Superfund contractor. Transitioning back to our narrative, in the fall of 1979, citizens were rightfully outraged at the appearance of the tangled hazardous waste-related web they were seeing, especially after they learned about the alleged plans for a Soul City-Afton landfill connection. As a result, the Warren County Board of Commissioners held a special meeting on September 11, 1979 that was covered by the Henderson Daily Dispatch. According to the Dispatch article, Throughout the meeting, citizens expressed their disgust and suspicions that since the state now owned the Afton site and could own much of the 5,000-acre Soul City property, the state could sell or lease the use of these lands to privately owned chemical industries. Concerned citizens had not forgotten that the previous year Waste Management Incorporated had purchased an option to buy 500 acres of land in Warren County land owned by Governor Hunt's campaign manager in order to build a multi-state hazardous waste landfill facility there. According to the Henderson Dispatch, as tempers flared at the special meeting, one woman screamed, the citizens of Warren County should organize and march on the governor's mansion in the White House. And Ken Ferruccio asked the commissioners to take immediate steps to zone the county against toxic chemical waste storage. However, Chairman Harris dodged Ken's request and said, Zoning would cause too many problems to be advantageous. Chairman Harris added that the county had passed an ordinance prohibiting PCBs in the county. The dangers of PCBs and other chemical waste were clearly riling up Warren County citizens and the public, not just in Warren County, but in the 14 counties and at Fort Bragg, had good reason to be upset about the dangers of PCBs. On September 15, 1979, the News and Observer published an article titled PCB levels in doves, rabbits, cited. The state's Wildlife Resources Commission had taken samples of doves and rabbits and found PCBs at 19 times more than what was allowed for human consumption. On September 20, 1979, the Warren Record published a similar article titled Doves, Rabbits Found to Have High Concentrations, 
which also mentioned the high concentrations of PCBs found in doves and rabbits. One state official said, we simply don't know the public health implications of consuming contaminated wildlife. One thing many roadside residents and others like Ken and me remembered was that soon after the summer of the 1978 midnight roadside PCB dumpings, residents had been warned by state officials not to eat crops or graze cattle within 100 yards of the PCB spills. Apparently, at the time, state agricultural department officials were confirming that PCBs were airborne. Going back to the apparent toxic web, on Wednesday, September 19, 1979, in an article published in the Henderson Daily Dispatch titled, Warren State Talk Over Offer, we learned that Warren County and state officials from the Department of Natural Resources and Community Development met in Warrington to discuss the recent conditional grant offer of $926,000 by the federal government to help construct the Warren County Wastewater Treatment Plant. Among those at the meeting were Howard Lee, Secretary of Natural Resources and Community Development, Eva Clayton, Lee's assistant, and representatives from the State Highway and Commerce Departments, the Cartar Regional Council of Governments, Jack Harris, Chairman of the Warren County Board of Commissioners, and Glenwood Newsom, Warren County Manager. According to the article, the conditions on the grant offer, as established by HUD, require that Warren County acquire the operation of the Soul City Sanitary District, the Parks and Recreation Association, and that the county will operate the planned regional water and sewer system. Under the conditions, the state must consider the acquisition of all or a substantial part of the Soul City project if HUD reacquires it. The state must also endeavor to develop the Soul City Industrial Park. We could see that between local, state, and federal government, a web of waste-related relationships seemed to be closing in on Warren County. On October 14, 1979, the Durham Morning Herald published an article titled Tons of Toxic Wastes and Eminent Hazard to Man. The article stated, The House Commerce Subcommittee on Investigation said in a new report, federal and state efforts to control disposal of hazardous wastes are totally inadequate. Environmental Protection Agency officials agreed with the report's conclusions that hazardous waste is the biggest environmental problem now facing the country. In reality, the biggest problem to EPA and industry was not what hazardous waste would do to people and the environment, but how it would affect industry's economic bottom line. On October 18, 1979, Warren County shifted its case against the state to federal court because the county added the EPA to the list of defendants represented by EPA Region 4 Administrator John C. White. No doubt, as a primary cause, the EPA should have been included as a primary defendant in the case. On November 2, 1979, the News and Observer published an article titled Poison Dumps Major Hazard Study Concluded, saying that millions of tons of poisonous wastes are being dumped each year all over the country and pose eminent and untold hazards to man and the environment and that even some of the largest and supposedly most responsible chemical companies in the country do not know where all their chemical wastes are going. In the same edition of the News and Observer, there was an article about transporting nuclear waste to Texas. Another article in the same edition was titled, 
New study prompts emergency nuclear plant meeting. The Nuclear Regulatory Agency had called an emergency meeting with less than 48 hours notice. The meeting was held two days after President Carter's commission made public its report on the accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear reactor meltdown in Pennsylvania. The report said that fundamental changes are necessary in the instruction, operation, and regulation of atomic reactors if the risks of nuclear power are to be kept within tolerable limits. The next day, November 3, 1979, in another News and Observer article titled State Plans Temporary Radioactive Waste Site, we learned the research triangle has been considered for the location of the long-term disposal site because 80% of the state's low-level radioactive wastes are produced there. Later, the article said, the research triangle hasn't been written off, but it doesn't seem to have the appropriate characteristics. The tangled web did not bode well for Warren County. Flexible EPA hazardous waste regulations, the proposed Afton PCB landfill site, the Seoul City Industrial Park, a regional wastewater sewage treatment plant, and in the mix now also was where to put the low-level radioactive waste. Where? Perhaps it was Warren County that seemed to have the appropriate characteristics. In subsequent podcast episodes, we'll continue to share the documented history of the tangled web of hazardous waste disposal plans that were playing out at the local, state, and federal levels in Warren County. And we'll continue to reveal how a multiracial coalition of industrial development and other officials and politicians targeted a sparsely populated but conveniently located poor minority community surely not anticipating the effort to stop them would be an informed, impassioned, and relentless multiracial coalition of ordinary citizens. Please join us next time. Thanks for listening.